Basketball Podcast back for another week in which it is snowing outside for me. Is that true? Really? The most important. It's the most important news item. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's quite irritating. It's May 9th. It's not like anything substantial. Like it'll be gone, you know, probably by the afternoon. But still, not okay. Yeah. Not okay right. with. Meanwhile, here in New York City, I had dinner by the lake last night. Like, it was very nice, and I'm very – we've been talking about baseball, actual baseball, for like a month now. Yeah. This is – you know, this – we should be in the swings of summer now. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's that how it's supposed to be, eating, eating meals by lakes and being outdoors. But, you know, we're schizophrenic here, weather-wise. I mean, and, uh, a literal mile in the sky. So. That is true, and I feel the need for all of you to know just what I'm suffering through weather-wise, so <laughs> I feel like I open half of our podcast with an update on Denver area weather. Um, but uh, there you go. Now you have it, and uh, we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com, episode number 208. I'm Tyler Maughan. He's Sam Dykstra. Uh, let's dive in. Thanks for tuning in wherever you found us at MILB.com slash podcast or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or elsewhere. Uh, you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription. You can get in touch with the show podcast at milb.com we're actually going to have a uh, a listener question coming up here in a little bit in three strikes uh but we're going to kick off three strikes our weekly show opening segment with uh strike one which is a discussion of the return to the field of the second ranked prospect in the minnesota twins organization alex kirilov who was finally back from a wrist injury that uh kept him out for the season's first month through seven games so far with double a pensacola in the southern league uh the new affiliate of the minnesota twins uh, in in the at the double A level, 296, 424, 407 is his early season slash line. He's got a couple of extra base hits. Uh, good to see Alex Kirloff back. It seems like he's not really hampered at this point by the wrist injury. Uh, but you know, even getting just a month out of action, you're always kind of wondering, well, how is this guy going to get started? And it doesn't seem like he's done anything but hit the ground running. Yeah, well, the interesting thing to me is that his eye hasn't gone away. You mentioned he's hitting 296 with a 424 OBP. That's certainly good. Um, that's one of the things we really like about Alex Kirilov is his overall hitting ability. Now, coming back from a wrist injury, Tyler, you talked to him the other night, and yeah. he said, like, there's always this lingering feeling in the back of your head, right, about, you know, is my wrist fully healed? And I think that's sapping him of some power a little bit. I mean, this is a guy who led the Meyer Leagues in – extra base hits last year and he's got two in seven games it's it's you know obviously the smallest of samples but um how long is that going to take to kind of be part of his game again and to the point where he is hitting the ball over the wall and in dri- and driving it into gaps um but the fact that he, this is his first time at double a he's taking his walks he's getting hits where he can get them um is certainly encouraging the interesting thing to me so far with him is uh, they've moved him around, which is not something I was fully expecting. Uh, Alex Kirilov, typically a right fielder during his time in, in the twin system. Um, obviously, he's dealt with injuries in the past. He missed all of 2017, I believe. Yeah, 2017 due to Tommy John surgery. Um, but they had no worries about moving him back to right field last year. To start out the year this year, they've allowed him to play some games at first base. Um, Four of his six starts so far with the Pensacola Blue Wahoos have been at first. Now, you know, he's going to hit enough to, to make that worth it. He's also got the size. He's six foot two, 195. I mean, this isn't um, somebody who's small for first base. But, you know, I think part of the reason why we like him as a top 10 overall prospect is 
the overall ability, the fact that he can play a pretty good outfield. He's got a pretty strong arm out there. Uh, moving him to first base kind of eliminates any defensive value with him. Is this just allowing him to ease into the season a little bit more, um, you know, keeping things off the wrist a, a little, you know, doesn't have to throw it as much. Um, we'll have to wait and see how that kind of plays out. But first base, it, it's going to be interesting to see what that does for him in the future. If that hastens a trip to the majors or um, it's just another thing he has in, in you know, his toolkit, we'll have to see. But Tyler, when you talk to him, what did you guys say about first base? Yeah, I asked him, you know, kind of how comfortable he was over there, and he said he was perfectly happy to do it. It was a position that he had played a lot uh, growing up, and uh, his quote was, I'm happy anywhere I can help the team, really. Wherever it gets me in the lineup, I'm happy with it. I enjoy playing first. I played there a lot growing up, and I've grown accustomed to right field and pro ball as well. I'm happy wherever they need me, and I'm going to work hard defensively to improve wherever I am. Um, that, to me, is a guy who is, who's, you know, confident enough in his skills in the outfield that he feels like he can move around, and if he needs to, to learn a different position if that's going to be the thing that gets him to the big leagues faster um, then he's obviously more than willing to do that but yeah I'm not sure what the what the long-term plan is for this we've seen this so much across baseball in the last several years that teams just want to get top prospects that versatility because it enhances the routes that can take them to the major leagues it gives you so many more options if you've got a guy who can only play one position or two positions um you know if it's a couple of corner outfield spots or or all across the outfield that's still more limiting than a guy who can play an outfield spot and can hit on that corner of the infield something like that um so i think it seems like it's just more of a, a getting experience and versatility thing uh, for alex here but yeah the the wrist thing is going to be interesting to watch because he was definitely very mindful of it. And I asked him a few questions about, like, you know, coming back from that, what are the biggest things uh, that, that come out of that, especially on the mental side? And he said, yeah, you know, I mean, it just takes a little bit more, um, you know, stretching and, and work to get it ready to go. But mentally there's also that that issue where you've got to make sure that you can trust it um, every day. And that's actually his, his quote. He said, mentally. I've just got to be able to try again on tough pitches inside or pitches outside. Just being able to mentally tell yourself and your body that your wrist is completely fine again is another step to take as well. Uh, when you're, you know, coming back from something and and you've always got that that little flashing light, that red light in the back of your mind as soon as you fire those hands for a swing, it's going to limit you somewhat. So it's it's about finding that balance between making sure that you're doing all the stuff to get it ready and prepared uh, for everyday action and also not overextending it. Uh, to break through that is a, is a thing, and that's not going to happen in the first week. It's a, a limited sample size, like you said, for Alex Kirilov. So I would imagine that you know by the end of the month, we'll certainly see, hopefully we'll see the guy who we saw last year. Um, but yeah, at least it's encouraging returns in the fact that he's hitting the ball. The, the pop will come back, I'm sure, um, but the fact that he's still hitting and he's still reaching is encouraging. Yeah, and w- one thing we should point out, too, in terms of uh, de- defensive, you know, situation right now uh, with the Twins. Obviously, Alex Kirilov, a big part of their future, putting him together with Royce Lewis and Brewster Gratterall. I mean, there, there's a good, solid base to build a, a farm system around there, uh, with obviously some other names as well. But uh, looking at their outfield situation right now, they've got Eddie Rosario, Byron Buxton, and Max Kepler taking up most of their spots. Kepler is playing right field. Um, former good prospect. Uh, young guy, is he going to be enough to knock 
Kirilov to first base. I mean, he's got a 113 WRC plus right now. Uh, he's been worth half a win through 31 games. If Kirilov is what we expect him to, he's going to be much better than that. Um, so, you know, again, maybe they envision a day when they can play Kepler and Kirilov. But, um, you know, he's not going to mar- mark knock Byron Buxton out of center field this year by yeah. any means. And Eddie Rosario has actually been the best of the three, and he's got some BABIP numbers that are going to turn around, and he's going to hit the start getting running even more so uh, here coming up in left field. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, obviously, the Twins are doing very well this year. They would love to have Kirilov up in the second half potentially for the pl- playoff run, try to hold off the Indians. Um, but we'll be keeping a close eye on exactly how they're treating uh, Kirilov now that he's only two steps away from the majors. Strike two this week, uh, the minor league home run leader as of right now through 30 games this season is one Sam Huff. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, who is Sam Huff? Well, Sam Dykstra is here to uh, provide some answers for you in this week's tool shed. 15 homers through 30 games for the Texas Rangers prospect who is currently with uh, Class A Hickory. He is Texas' number 21 prospect. Um, so not a guy who was totally unknown in that system. He was a seventh-round pick out of high school, Arcadia High School in Phoenix back in 2016. Uh, but this is certainly kind of the definition of a breakout season. He did have 18 homers last year for Hickory. Uh, that was in 118 games. He's through 30 games. He's got 15 homers already. Yeah, it's it's nuts. You could just pour over some of these numbers over and over and just wonder exactly how he's doing this. Uh, so I tried to get some answers. And one thing about Huff is, as you mentioned, you know he he is a prospect because of the power potential. He is six foot four. Uh, he's listed at 230 pounds. He told me he's at 240 pounds. Um, and he's a catcher. So, you know, what, and he's catcher, a catcher slash first baseman, but. That's a guy who needs to be able to move. Right, and we'll get into that here in a little bit about how he's going to become a major league prospect or you know, uh, try to fit into a major league lineup someday. But for now, uh, yeah, he is repeating Class A Hickory, so he knows the level, he knows the quality of pitchers, he knows the areas, all of that. He says he feels fully comfortable being back there, and he's kind of glad for it because you know he he only had an OPS last year of 731. This isn't the guy who you look at and say yes, he definitely needs to be at Class A advanced down east. Um, but one thing he's done to kind of turn around things is, as I mentioned, he added uh, 10 pounds of muscle in the off season on top of you know again already a base of 230. Now he's up to 240. But he said he concentrated on the upper half. Uh, he, he started to tire a little bit at the back half of last season. The stats back that up. That's in Toolshed. You can read about that. Uh, and he went to a trainer and said, like, what happened here? Why am I getting tired down the stretch? This obviously isn't what you want. This is the first time he had played more than 50 games in a season. So you, you use that as a learning process. Um, he, he learned that a lot of his mass was kind of concentrated in the lower half. Okay, now he needs to... Uh, work on the upper half. In adding strength there, now you're hit, seeing him hit bombs. I lead the story with one he hit in Columbia, one that he called his favorite homer of the year, which was a pitch down and away. And he reached down and just got it. And it looks like he pokes it, but he drives it over the batter's eye in Columbia, which, according to the video we have, 
broadcaster there says he's rarely ever seen anybody do that. And it goes beyond the, the fence. It's not just above the batter's eye. It's well beyond the 400 mark out there. Um, so he's got plenty of power now, but he's also changed his approach. Um, this is somebody who struck out 140 times in 118 games last year. He's still striking out plenty this year. Um, you know, his, his strikeout rate has actually gone up a little bit from 31.3% to 32.5%. But that's because, A, he's concentrating a lot on power, and that's he says he puts his A swing on a, on a lot of pitches. Um, but by focusing in on what he called a little box. He's just trying to look for his pitch in this zone so he can do damage with it. Um, yeah, he's going to get pitches elsewhere, and that's going to lead to some strikeouts. But if he's going to make solid contact whenever the ball is in that zone, that's how you end up with 15 homers and, and 30 at-bats. Um, I'm going to be really interested to see how he can kind of carry this. you got to feel like now a move to Downey's is kind of inevitable because he's just not being challenged anymore in the Sally League. But... It's kind of unsustainable, too, when you think about it, because 48.4% of his fly balls have been home runs. Usually we think about average is about 10%. His is 48.4%. And a lot of these are no doubters. I mean, he's not getting cheapos, that's for sure. Um, but how sustainable is that going to be? We'll have to see what happens when he does get challenged with the move to the Carolina League. Uh, you know, If he is looking in one specific spot, there are going to start to be pitchers who catch up on that, try to pitch him away or, you know, he's looking middle away, so they're going to try to pitch him away from that zone, try to keep him inside, maybe see what he can do there. He seems pretty confident that he can turn on an inside fastball, even if he's looking middle away, but uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that. But as you mentioned, Tyler, six foot four as a catcher, um, it's, it's really difficult to do that. And he knows that, and he's, he's talked to people in the, the Rangers organization, uh, Jose Trevino being one of them, Jeff Mathis being another one, about how do I become a good receiver and how do I become a good defensive catcher. Uh, in one instance that it's actually working so far is that he's caught 13 of 22 attempted base stealers when he has played catcher. Uh, he has not played first base yet this season. He did that 11 times last year. It's still something he's thinking about. You know, He knows that at any point the Ranger could say, listen, your bat's good enough now. We're just going to stick you at first. Don't worry about all this other stuff. But he said he's worked really hard uh, in terms of workouts and preparation to become quicker behind the plate, to be more explosive. Um, one piece of advice that he thought was pretty helpful was to think like a shortstop. You know, get the ball and get rid of it. Don't try to think about like, okay, what do I do next? Just get it and get it out there. And he's got a pretty good arm, so that's one reason why the Rangers would love to stick him at catcher and, and allow him to be there for the rest of his career. Uh, you know, the, the tough sledding is still a way to go there. Uh, he started 14 games at catcher, 16 at DH, so, uh, you know, obviously not a – fully well-rounded prospect defensively quite yet. Um, but to see this this caught stealing rate take off the way it has is certainly encouraging. Uh, to see this power take off the way it has when you know we talk about what's happening at the AAA level and the way guys are hitting home runs there, he's beating Jordan Alvarez. He's beating Kevin Crone. He's beating Austin Riley in terms of home runs this year. Um, so, you know, Sam Huff, somebody on the radar, but now fully in the middle and somebody we're going to have to watch very, very closely here uh, coming up in the weeks and months uh, it, to go here as we turn towards summer. One of the lines in his MLB Pipeline uh, prospect bio is, quote, surprisingly athletic for a big catcher, which is kind of like a nice little backhanded compliment there. Yeah. Uh, 
strike three this week, Sam. Uh, Carter Keboom goes up to the Washington Nationals. Before we get into strike three, uh, we should point out that our strike three topic, Carter Keboom and the Washington Nationals, actually was sent back to AAA Fresno this week. Uh, when we recorded this uh, discussion, we were unaware of that roster move, but um, we kind of allude to, well, if he goes back to Fresno at some point, he did go back to Fresno this week, so that's just something to keep in mind for strike three and uh, is not really broken out there as of yet. 11 games, a 128, 209, 282 slash line. And we got this email in uh, from John Topoleski, who is a, a longtime listener of the show, uh, asking about Keyboom and said, quote, Yes, he was batting 379 at AAA Fresno, but that was only over 18 games, and his BABIP was an astounding 578. Uh, league average for batting average on balls in play is about 300. And yes, they wouldn't have called him up there hadn't had there not been some injuries on the Major League Club. The Nats will likely keep him for a while longer until Trey Turner gets back. But could the Nationals hurt him by keeping him up at the big league level if it ruins his confidence or something like that? I guess what I'd be curious about hearing you discuss is whether there is any damage in bringing prospects up quote too soon unquote if there are are there some examples that you can think of or is that malarkey and that a good player might need time to adjust but eventually he will I think there's a lot of both there but Sam your thoughts yeah I think it's always an individual case and organizations know their players better than we ever will uh, being this far removed so one thing I think they know about Keeboom is that uh, you know mentally he was ready for the majors um you know, the way he pushed last year and what he showed in spring training. Yes, he was good, really, really good at Fresno. And we thought like a, a promotion could be coming at some point in the first half. Injuries pushed up that timeline. But they they saw him even in the spring do really well. And I think some, some of the things he's doing in Washington uh, have been good as well. You know, yeah, the offensive numbers aren't there, but some of the X velocities he's putting up have been tremendous. Um, I think a, a game I went to, down in Washington a couple weeks back, uh, saw him. I think it was his second game, actually, in the major leagues. He had a liner right up the middle that was right at one of the infielders. Um, but the exit velocity, I think, was 108. It was the second hardest hit of the game, the other one being a Juan Soto homer. So, you know, like th- there are other metrics here that they're measuring him against. Um, in terms of other prospects who get up call- get, can get up, called up too soon, uh, one that I think of, and I know he's superhuman and isn't a great example for everything, but was Mike Trout. I mean, Mike Trout wasn't a very good rookie his first year. Um, still had rookie status going into the second year, obviously won AL Rookie of the Year. But, um, you know, the, Mike Trout took his lumps early and adjusted. Sometimes you need to see the level to know what you're up against. Uh, we're going through this a little bit now with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., to be honest with you. Uh, nobody's freaking out yet. I, I'm very glad that my mentions are not filled with people saying, I thought you said this guy was good. Um, <laughs> but they need to see that quality of competition. Now, unfortunately for the Nats, the Nats are going through a rough time right now and can't really afford to just keep trotting out a player who's learning the game at the top level. Um, they need to see results. And to see him struggle defensively and offensively doesn't hurt that or doesn't help that narrative that Carter Keeboom is a very good prospect. I still do think he is a very good prospect. I still think Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to be one of the best young hitters in the game. But they need to see this level of competition and just back. Sometimes it can happen. You know, I, brought, I bring up Trout. Sometimes guys can come up a little too early and their confidence gets wrecked. Byron Buxton, we talked about him earlier. He was supposed to be, you know, the next Trout, essentially. Um, and he is still one of the best 
defensive center fielders in the game, one of the fastest players in the game. Um, but in terms of the bat, it's never really come around uh, because you know he came up early and hit 209 in his first season with Minnesota back in 2015 and is a career 232 hitter in the majors. He has not been able to make that adjustment back, but you won't know whether they can do that until they are at the major league level. Um, so, you know, letting Keyboom continue to mash at AAA, uh, even with that high BIP, and yeah, maybe things would have come come down a little bit at some point, but I think they were seeing a lot of other things that told them he was ready to make that jump. Um, and, but they could let him continue to do that and say like, oh, we, we're not sure, we're not sure, we, we want him to really hit the ground running, but you can't know until they're in that situation. Um, so credit to the, to the Nats, they, they've done a good job of this in the past. They brought up Robles, they brought up Soto. Um, they know what they're doing when their players are ready. Uh, Keyboom's just one example going the other way, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, this is not going to be the last we hear of him. He may take his lumps now, but he's a pretty confident guy through and through, and he, he will be a major contributor to that team uh, in the second half, I still think. And that'll do it. So where do you kind of st- – oh. Yeah, where do you kind of go on this? Yeah, uh, no, I mean, I think it's um, – like you said, major league organizations are so much more in tune with their guys. I think uh, big league organizations have done a good job of learning where guys are on the mental side, and that is, to me, the final component with promoting a prospect to the major leagues. If you feel like a guy is still even somewhat shaky in where he is, uh, you know, trying to trust himself at the high levels of the minor leagues, you're never going to give him that look at the major league level. Guys get promoted based on their ability to handle failure. Uh, and that, to me, if if you're not sure about that injuries and, and all that depth stuff be damned, you're not going to give a guy a look at the major league level if you feel like it's going to cripple him to go up there uh, and not succeed. Now, granted, we still see it every once in a while in the big leagues, uh, but it's it's something where I think organizations have gotten so much better at being able to evaluate that last component of it um, that that, uh, you know, Carter Keeboom is going to be fine eventually. Uh, it's just a case right now of can you weather this storm and will it be enough for him to weather the storm and remain at the major league level or when that roster gets back healthy uh, is he going to be back in Fresno and trying to get it figured out there that oftentimes I think is something that is more of a shot to confidence to guys uh, who go up for the first time than anything else to go up and struggle is one thing to go up struggle and get sent back down while you're still struggling that can sometimes be a, a punch in the gut but I'm not real worried about Carter Keeboom especially the fact that he's 21 and he's still got you know more than all of his baseball career ahead of him um, it's uh, at this stage Obviously, the Nationals, and I'm sure Kiba more than anybody, would love uh, for him to bust out and, and ha- go on a little run uh, to put himself in a you know a, a little bit better standing statistically at the major league level. But I think he'll be fine. I think the Nationals are pretty confident in that. So yeah, that will wrap up three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show. And coming up, we're going to head to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim organization. The 12th frame prospect in that system is left-handed pitcher Patrick Sandoval, who is up with the AAA Salt Lake Bees, and he joins the show coming up next. We're joined this week on the show before the show podcast with left-handed pitcher and number 12 Angels prospect. Patrick Sandoval. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Good, good. So I wanted to kind of get this out of the way just because it's one of the things I think a lot of our listeners are probably wondering. You're in Las Vegas right now uh, with, you know, in the PCL <laughs> traveling. 
what is it like visiting Las Vegas as a visiting player? Are you allowed to do anything? Do you just kind of, I know it's a new stadium, all that. What are you allowed to do as a visiting player in Vegas? I mean, uh, we're all around here, but the, the stadium the facilities that are, the new stadium are unbelievably nice. It's unreal. And the uh, hotel we stay at is really nice as well. Some of the guys there said, like, it's, it's better than some big league hotels and facility-wise as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're basically tourists until it's time to get to the field. So, <laughs> fill up the day whatever we want to do. There you go. There you go. Um, so, yeah, so let's kind of get into it. This is your introduction to the PCL. Like we said, you made your debut on May 4th uh, through three and two-thirds innings, gave up four runs, only one of which were earned against El Paso. And El Paso is one of the best PCL offenses this year. I know it's early, but what have you learned about the AAA level so far? Um, I definitely learned that that ball goes a mile if you, <laughs> you leave it in bad spots. Uh, um, I learned that, I mean, those, those hitters, the biggest difference for me was that they, they they seemed a lot more patient and a lot more selective. And when they got the pitch they wanted to hit, they, they hit it hard. And uh, it's uh, taught me that I need to be more, uh, I'd say, intentful with the way I'm putting my pitches and, and not miss as much. But, I mean, it was, it was a fun. It was like the most fun I've ever had pitching, to be honest. It was a lot of fun. What, why was that? I was just the the atmosphere at El Paso was really cool, and I mean like the con like the competition was was great, and I don't know I was just really excited to get out there. It was just all that put together. I had a lot of fun out there. Right, no, that makes sense. I mean, this is the closest to the major leagues you've technically ever been. I'm glad you mentioned the yeah. ball uh, as well. Um, we talked to Zach Brown, who who plays in the Brewers organization. He's just getting used to the AAA level as well. One of the big stories being the composition of the ball is different this year. They're going to the major league ball. You're somebody who pitched at Double A this year, so you can directly compare. What is it like throwing this this new version of the ball? Uh, I mean, the only difference is with like the, with throwing it is that the seams are a little lower, but it doesn't feel much different. The biggest difference was like going to BP, like shagging BP, and seeing how far the ball flies once like they get a hold of it and those things feel like out of the stadium. It's insane. And do you feel like that preps you for the major leagues better? being able to see that and mentally prepare for it. I mean, the PCL is a pitch or a hitter's league anyway, so you're going to get used to knowing you're going yeah. to hit, hit your spots. But to see the ball react this way, does this feel like good major league prep for you? I think, yeah, it's getting used to throwing in like now instead of me using a minor league ball in AAA and getting up there one day, hopefully, and having to adjust to a whole new ball at that level. I feel like it's it's way better for development purposes that, that makes sense all right so this is you know, you've got six uh, appearances this year under your belt already this is your first full season in the angels organization you got a full offseason mm-hmm. to prepare after you got traded from the astros for uh martin maldonado last july uh you know you're coming up here on a full year with with the angels organization um you know, how does it kind of compare to the first couple of years that you had in pro ball with the Astros? What has it been like having an offseason to prepare the Angels' way and going through a spring uh, under their belt? Um, to be honest, it's not much different. Uh, the Angels are moving more towards the analytical side, especially I'm, I can't speak for the hitting, but the pitching uh, side of things, they are moving more towards the, the analytical, like track man data stuff. So it's 
actually very similar to the stuff that we were doing in, with uh, Houston. So it, it was an easy transition for me. Um, I've heard most of the things that they're talking about, and, and we're pretty much on the same page. And, and when you do look at that TrackMan data, because it is becoming such a big thing in baseball, obviously, um, what have you yeah. learned about yourself that you didn't know about yourself, you know, starting back even 2015 when you got drafted or in high school? What has the data shown you and allowed you to correct in your game? Oh, just the biggest thing for me is that, like, I need to trust my fastball a little bit more. That it, it shows that it, it plays at the upper levels and in the major leagues. And if I throw it for strikes, it's an effective pitch, which is my biggest uh, developmental plan, like goal going forward this year, is filling up the strike zone with, with my fastball. And what about it plays so well? I mean, you're kind of a low 90s guy, but with some movement, what is the TrackMan data showing you yeah. with that pitch? Uh, just that it, it's got true, it's got a true shape to it, and it, it's got a good amount of ride to it. So uh, it obviously plays up in the zone for me. Uh, a little sketchy to throw it up in the zone here, but I'm going <laughs> to have to trust it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I would think that's one of the things PCL always people say is it teaches you to pitch down for sure. Um, but let's go back to last year. Last year was kind of a breakout year for you. You finished with a 2.06 ERA across four different player places. You played it. You started at Class A Quad Cities. You moved to Class A Advanced Bowie's Creek. When you got traded, you went to Inland Empire, and then you finished the year with Double A Mobile. Uh, you know, when did it feel like it was going to be a special year for you last year? Um, honestly, after the the outing I had in Burlington last year, where I gave up ten runs, like. I had like a long look in the mirror and told myself like things need to change, change up my whole routine and, and just like focus more on, on getting my body correct and uh, being in the weight room and having the mentality of attacking every day. I, I like once I started doing that, pitching him much more, much easier to me and I'm, I was much more confident in all my stuff and it just took off from there. Yeah, and just so people at home have an idea, you gave up 10 earned runs. You gave up 28 for the season. So almost a third came yeah. in that one start. So obviously you fixed some things. What's something you do differently in your routine that you weren't doing at the beginning of your career? I mean, I was just uh, making sure I got myself ready for every day in the weight room, whether it was doing my corrective exercises or getting some sort of workout. And I don't know, that, that just seemed to lock me in for the rest of the season. Yeah, um, how, instead how, of just like sitting in my locker all day, you know. Right. And how does that translate yeah. exactly? I mean, the, that's one thing to be in a better mindset and be in a better position to pitch, but you have to still actually do it. What did you notice a change in your stuff as a result? In my not necessarily my stuff, just the way I went out and pitched. I, it just gave me a lot more confidence. I don't know, knowing that I, I was ready to to pitch every day I got out there. Hmm. So. Yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, no, there you go. And, and then what was your kind of mentality when you hear you get traded? Because you were basically traded straight up for a major leaguer, um, which I imagine feels pretty good in that way that an organization views you equal to that. But um, you're still being traded out of the only organization you had ever known. How did you kind of process yeah. the trade when it happened? Um, well, I didn't really know what to think at first when it happened. And then the manager I had in, in high A, he was uh, with Astros, Morgan Enberg. He called me in, like, told me I got traded and everything. And then, like, 10 minutes later, he called me back in, and he was like, dude, you just got traded for a big leaguer. Like, that's insane. That's awesome. Like, like, this is big for you. Like, don't let this, like, this is huge. Like, he just wanted to get that across. 
so after that I was like okay I mean like I guess this is a really good thing and I was obviously really excited to be able to go home and pitch in California League so and obviously I have the chance to pitch in Anaheim at one point hopefully this year or maybe next year but um, yeah, I mean I was really excited and I'm still very very excited yeah yeah no I bet yeah what, what was the reaction like back home hearing that you were going to be pitching uh, you know, for the Angels, which it was that a team you rooted for growing up? Because you're from Mission Viejo, which isn't terrible. Yeah, I mean, I'm. Yeah, no, I'm not far at all. I just I grew up going to Angel games all the time, but uh, I don't know. I've never really had a team. I like family kind of rooted for the Dodgers growing up, but we were always at Angel games because it was so close. But my whole family was really excited. Yeah, when I got traded, I had friends and family texting me just. My phone was blowing up with excited people texting me. It was awesome. Hmm. Yeah, and it, I imagine it's much easier to switch affiliations when they have somebody connected to the team like that. Um, yeah, exactly. So look, kind of getting back to, to you as a pitcher, um, you know, one of the things that stands out to me whenever I read a scouting report about you is that it seems like the change-up is something that you've developed into a pretty good pitch. That's something that usually comes last for a lot of guys. Uh, it's not something uh-huh. you necessarily need. What have you done to make that into kind of a weapon for you? Um, coming out of high school, uh, my pitch was a curveball. It's like the, my true like tool, I guess, that, that stood out to everybody. But I always had a change up, and coaches that had seen it like said that this is like your best pitch in their opinion and stuff. And I never really used it because I liked throwing my curveball. And in high school, I mean, I got away with throwing fastballs and curveballs. But uh, coming out when I got with the Astros, they wanted me to develop a change up more. So the biggest thing for me was I, I threw it. I from the day I started my like throwing program in professional baseball, I've thrown a change up throw like almost half of the changeups every day and that's just developed it and I have a lot of feel for it so I think that's the biggest thing for me is I get a lot of reps in every day hmm. yeah and when you do get those reps when what does a good changeup feel like to you you know what are you looking for out of it and how do you kind of define when you've thrown a good one um well right out of hand I just I honestly feel like I'm throwing a fastball right when it comes out like I can feel my fingers pulling, like getting inside of it on the side. And, uh, I mean, I can see it just, uh, like it literally looks like it stops and then just like falls and tails and fades. And one thing I want to talk about with you too is in terms of your scouting report and anybody who's watched you pitch is you kind of have a high tempo delivery. You, You get it and it's, you know, you're working your entire body to get it home. Uh, is that something anybody's ever worked you, with you on? I mean, when did that develop, that type of style of pitching? No, I think I've, all, I've always been like that. It's just uh, the delivery I have now is way more simplified because, I mean, I am pretty violent in the way I, I throw. So coming up, I just had too many moving parts. And then I think it was two spring trainings ago, the, the Astros just had me just take a step back and get into it and that was it and like they're intent intent like throw the ball with intent so i took that to, to heart and just, i tried to throw the crap out of it <laughs> when, when, <laughs> yeah 
And again, it's it's one thing to just kind of do that, but how do you still maintain your stuff when you're just thinking like, okay, I need, just need to get rid of it and stop this moving too yeah. things, moving uh, especially like too many levers, all that kind of stuff. How do you marry the two of your stuff and keeping uh, the tempo in your delivery? Well, I think it's just it just comes down to getting reps, like and bullpens and being intentful with the way that I I work and move my body and know that every little movement has its purpose and to be able to get my body moving down the mountain as efficiently as possible and I like to move down it pretty quick so I like to merge the two and it's just feeling for me like during bullpens throwing program like getting my body moving the right way quickly and efficiently and I want to jump back a little bit even further. You you were talking about coming out of high school. You were mostly fastball, curveball. That helped you get a commitment to USC, I think, right? Um, yes. Going out, going out of high school. And you ended up getting picked in the 11th round of the draft. That's usually where teams you start to take risks on guys who seem pretty solid about going to college, but maybe they can talk you into it. Obviously, the Astros did. What was that process like? What were the Astros saying to you about, hey, we think, you have a future in this if you come into the pros right now um yeah it wasn't really much of them saying much it was uh i sat down with my family and my my agent and my pitching coach from high school who's is my his dad is my agent so and he's been through the whole process he played pro ball and it came down to what what's the ultimate goal and my ultimate goal is to get to the big leagues obviously and and they said that, that the way the Astros develop pitchers and their farm system is that it, the best shot for me would be to sign out of high school. And I mean, that was basically all that it took for me to get there. Hmm. And, and obviously, it took a little bit of a while. Like we said, last year was your kind of breakout year, but first three years, your ERAs were 6.08, 5.30, 4.09. What was that like going through that process and just knowing, you know, being a high school picture, it is going to take a while, even if you do have to take your lumps? Yeah, um, it, it was a bit of a long adjustment for me. I didn't really know what to expect coming out of high school with what, what Pro Ball was all about. And when I got to Florida, it kind of just like hit me like, okay, this is it. And then going to the Happy League, I still hadn't fully made an adjustment. And then, uh, I don't know, something clicked that offseason after I, I pitched in Greenville um, that I, I, I couldn't honestly tell you what it was. I got to do extended spring training that year, and I felt, like, much more confident, and I felt like this was, like, like this is going to be my career for the next however long I want it to be because mm-hmm. I felt something just clicked. I, I honestly couldn't tell you. <laughs> All right, well, let's kind of compare where you are today, being a AAA pitcher, being a bona fide prospect, to where you felt, let's say, 12 months ago at this point. You were just starting your breakout, but like you said, you were just also coming off starts in which you allowed 10 earned runs. Um, What has this last 12 months been like? Kind of compare where you are today on May 9th to where you were May 9th, 2018. I mean, yeah, I kind of had a moment with uh, Adrian Dorda. We we got sent up together here. we were flying. Well, first we we like got to El Paso. We're in the clubhouse, and we just like looked at each other like, "Damn, like this is insane." I was like, a year ago, I was still in low A. Like, <laughs> I I'd probably almost just given up my ten run. <laughs> thought my career was over or something, but uh, yeah, it's definitely insane to see where I am now as opposed to last year, even because 
I mean, I, I couldn't even thought, think of that. And, uh, yeah, and how close do you kind of feel now? I mean, you're going into your fifth year. At the end of the year, you're going to be eligible for the Rule 5 draft, so you're probably going to be added to the 40-man roster at some point but between now and then, hopefully before, but we'll see. Um, you know, how, how close does it feel at the AAA level? I mean, yeah, it's, it's extremely close, obviously. Yesterday we were in the dugout, and uh, Gerardo looks at me and he goes, dude, isn't it, like, kind of wild? Like, there's nowhere to go. Like, we're not going up another level in the minor leagues after this. Like, the next level <laughs> is the level. And I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of crazy to actually think about. So, I mean, yeah, we're one step away, and it's, it's fun. <laughs> I, I don't know why putting it in that way just sounds funny to me, but it does. Like you're like, yeah. The next time you get called up, it's literally to the show. There is no other place to go. Um, yeah. All right. So, we, when you were part of the Astros organization, that you were coming up in a time when the Astros were starting to get success and really starting to grow a really solid farm system. Now you're part of the Angels system, which is almost starting to do the same thing. Lots of really talented guys there. Um, what is yeah. the sense of this system? What was it like this spring, uh, especially on the minor league side, seeing the, the group of talent that it, the Angels have built over the last couple of years? Yeah, it's an, it was an exciting spring training. Like all the, the coordinators, all the pitching coaches, I mean, everyone there is very excited. They told us about all the talent that we have going up through the farm system. And I mean, we are like, we're very loaded with arms. Uh, especially, and it was it was awesome to see. I mean, we have some guys that obviously Griff who just broke out in the bigs this year, um, and then Chris Rodriguez, who I think might have like the most electric stuff I've ever seen, which is I don't know, it's insane. All right, uh, Patrick, we'll we'll end on this one. Um, being a California guy, as we've said, you get traded to a California organization, one that whose ballpark you visited many times. Um, you know, being a guy who's going to potentially go back to California someday, when you do get that next call, it will be to Los Angeles, technically Anaheim. Uh, what's the first thing you do when you get back in California? What's like the first restaurant you go to? Or what's the first thing you do to make yourself feel at home back in the Golden State? Oh, man. Huh. I think I'm going to have to go to In-N-Out like, right away, right <laughs> when I get that call. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's tough to think about. Probably go to In-N-Out and have a nice sleep in my own bed. There you go. That's, that's <laughs> something a lot of people can't say on both ends, whether it's getting in and out or <laughs> yeah. sleeping in their own bed. What's your go-to order? Double-double, uh, uh, regular size, and a Neapolitan shake. Okay, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, Patrick Sandoval, thanks so much for joining us, uh, calling in from Vegas with AAA Salt Lake. Best of luck the rest of the way uh, over there with the bees, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again down the line. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Benjamin Hill is back in the office, back from the road, and uh, safe and sound. How was the, the trip home? Uh, the trip home was uneventful. Um, it's a good thing. Which is a very good thing. I made it back. Uh, made it back to New York City in the early afternoon, and I'll tell you what. I am never more like sort of vulnerable, like emotionally vulnerable slash like ecstatic than when I come back from the trips. Because one, I come back to New York City, which you know is a place that can beat you down. But when you're away from it and you come back, there's this feeling of like, yeah, like I live here. It's the greatest place. Like my life is awesome. And you need to leave to feel that. 
And then, too, I'm always so stressed out on the road just with, like, you know, where I am, where I need to be, who I need to talk to, what I need to do in the hotel room, that I enjoy the trips, but there's just, like, this kind of anxious edge I can never get rid of. And then when I make it home, I'm finally able to just be like, did it! And so combination of loving New York City and feeling like I made it through the road and then being able to look back and be so appreciative of all the people I met and all the positive energy, then I feel really good. So I felt really good yesterday. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm just imagining you you saying emotionally vulnerable. Well, I kind of like was just, almost like crying, you know? I, 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 like okay. not, not, no, I'm not, I'm not making fun of Not like I, bawling, like very lo- losing it, but just I, I feel like I could just kind of cry when I make it back. Uh, one, out of appreciation for the experiences I have on the road and two, out of appreciation for living in New York City. I'm all about emotional vulnerability. That's good. Days. No, I'm, it's my love it. It's my new thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get started with uh, there were three cities on the itinerary: Lynchburg, Virginia, Fayetteville, North Carolina, and uh, Richmond, Virginia. Also, um, Lynchburg is where we'll stop for story number one. And you had a story up on the the site about uh, Cleveland right-handed pitching prospect Robert Broom, who is living at the ballpark, Lynchburg City Stadium, uh, um, and not not uh in a, in a joking fashion he's actually living in the ballpark in an rv that he has parked uh in the parking lot there give us uh, the lowdown on this story yeah you know i was in lynchburg uh this past saturday and sunday and uh you know four years ago when i went to lynchburg uh the game got rained out about the second inning this time around uh there was an official game on saturday but it was over after six and then sunday was completely rained out um so i learned that they play the they call the place drenchburg I don't know how many people use that, but some huh. people were like, hey, welcome to that. Drenchburg. Um, I feel like every Meyer League city feels like it gets the most rain. Yeah, all the it Meyer does, cities. but I tell you, there's some of those southern locations, Virginia, the Carolinas, that just seem like they get deluged sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was at the ballpark on Saturday night talking to Max Gunn, the Hillcats announcer, and uh, I was like, yeah, just let me know. You know, I'm always on the lookout for just kind of unorthodox stories. And he's like, well, we got a guy living in the uh, parking lot in his RV. I'm like... Let's do it. That's, like, wait, that's what, what I'm looking for. Um, so the next day I came to the ballpark, and the, even though the ball, the game was rained out, and I actually met my designated eater during a, you know, a game during when there wasn't a game happening, but the staff made food for him anyway. And uh, before I did all that, uh, I met with Robert Broom. Uh, this guy, you know, he's from. Uh, in the story, I say Chattanooga area. He lives, you know, actually across the state line in Georgia. Um, you know, grew up in the woods, always like, you know, being outdoors and camping. Real handy guy. Um, has an old pickup truck. Uh, I believe it was a 97 Dodge Ram, 3500. You know, he ripped out the transmission, has manual transmission in there. This guy knows what he's doing. And, uh, you know, last year was his first major, uh, minor league season. He got drafted, you know, in 2018, so he only had about half a season. He lived with a host family when he was in Class A Lake County and said that was fine. Lived in a basement with some other players. But, you know, he said, I'm an independent guy, and, you know, he's a handy guy. He likes the outdoors. So in the offseason, he bought a truck, a camper for his pickup truck and had it installed. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 1997 camper. It's not, you know, new and shiny, but it, it gets the job done. And he, uh, so I interviewed him about him, about what inspired him to do this living situation. And he gave me a, a full, you know, three-minute tour of the entirety of the RV. So if you go to the story, uh, which you can find on MILB.com, and of course all my work is MILB.com slash fans slash Ben's Biz. Um, you can check out the story. Uh, in the story, there is a video where he gives a, a tour of the RV. And, you know, if you see it from the outside, this, you know, 1997 camper on top of a 1995 truck, it doesn't look bad or anything, but, you know, it looks, you know, kind of a little bit old, a little bit beat up, not in a bad way, but just, you know, these are things that have been used and gotten a lot of usage. But you go into this camper and, like, he really has it set up really well with the kitchen table and, uh, 
uh, queen size mattress, uh, you know, sleeping area, TV, um, closet, uh, refrigerator, freezer, uh, stove, and he's a real handy guy, you know, so he's talking all this stuff about, you know, power inverters and the generator and how he's going to make it a supplemental AC uh, that he's working on. So he's just like a handy guy who just kind of likes to do it his way. And then when on off days or when he has time, you know, he can drive the RV around, you know, go camping, uh, check out the area. And uh, he said his plan is, as he moves his way up the uh, Indian system, you know, knock on wood that he does that. He's off to a great start. Uh, he's a reliever, uh, you know, off to a great start. Um, you know, he just wants to keep living in this RV, kind of keep to himself and have his own situation, his own independent situation. And he said, as opposed to paying rent somewhere, which might be the case, you know, he is now something in his own name as opposed to just rent, you know, going out the window and not being something you can really, uh, you know, have in your name. Something uh, we know very well living in New York yeah, City. Right. <laughs> uh, I have a few questions about this, some of which I'm not sure if you got answers to, but so Lynchburg allows him this parking spot. Like, it, it, is it a public parking spot? Is it a team parking spot? Like, do the doors close so he can get out or do the doors open so he can get out? Like, how does that situation work? Well, it's a stadium parking lot. This is a uh, Lynchburg city stadium, real old facility. And it's a very spacious parking lot. So there's always room for the RV and Lynchburg is a, you know, it's a small city, but at the end of the day, it's a pretty rural area. So this is a big parking lot in a pretty spacious area. Uh, I'm not sure what the situation is in terms of what gates are open at what times, if he always has in and out access. Um, but he said he has this little spot in the corner he usually likes to use. And he said he's, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you know how busy you are when you're a minor league baseball player. One, you're on the road half the time. And then the other times, um, you know, you're at the ballpark, you know, from at least from early afternoon all the way till pretty late at night. So he said, basically, I just sleep in this thing and then might have a few, you know, stray hours in the morning, you know, cook up some eggs and hang out a little bit. And, you know, that's about it. And, you know, in the rare off days, he can kind of drive around and check things out and enjoy the outdoors. He said he and, he and the teammates uh, plan to have a cookout at some point and, uh, you know, have fun with it. So how long this lasts, I don't know. But, you know, I just thought it was really interesting and, you know, kind of quintessential minor league baseball. Like, well, yeah, we got a guy living in an RV yeah, out right, in the parking yeah. lot. I, I love those kind of stories. It's an easy commute. We know that much. Um, Fayetteville, North Carolina was one of the stops on this trip as well. First of all, how do we pronounce the stadium's name? Segra. I figured it Segra. out. Segra. I figured it out. Segra Stadium. I did a lot of research, asked, uh, you know, many people, um, really uh, did the legwork uh, as a journalist would to figure it out. It's Segra Stadium. Have multiple sources. <laughs> multiple so. sources state that it is Segra Stadium. Um, yeah, so that was the reason I went down to this, uh, this area, uh, North Carolina, Virginia, was because it was motivated to go to Fayetteville, uh, one of the three new ballparks. And as I've mentioned on, on the podcast before and elsewhere, you know, I'm spending more time in places and going to less overall ballparks this year. So I had three nights in Segra Stadium to really uh, get the lay of the land, um, have a story out today on the food. And um, there'll be a story, well, multiple stories coming out next week. So way more to come uh, about Segra Stadium. Um, you know, one of the things in oh, when did I talk to you guys last? I talked to you guys uh, last Thursday, so yeah. we did talk about Fayetteville a little bit there. A little bit, right? Um, we didn't get into the food so much. Yeah. So the food was, you know, they don't have one of those signature items that just like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, but you know, I was talking to Austin Ponzel, the uh, food and beverage director. Um, you know, he's a guy who's worked in Rancho Cucamonga, Peoria, um, you know, Madison Mallards uh, in the Woodbat Leagues, and he's been around. And he said, "Look, like I've I've been all around the country with my job, and Fayetteville is the kind of place where you have people from all around the country as a result of being uh, the home of Fort Bragg, the largest military installation in the world." So he said, "Our basic approach with food is to, 
you know, have things that kind of speak to all parts of America as in the same way that Fayetteville's population, you know, hails from all parts of America, you know, again, as a result of Fort Bragg. Um, you know, so we, you know, focused on some of the, I don't want to say standard stuff, but uh, pulled pork nachos, um, mac and cheese dog. I have a designated eater, Jenny Bell, who uh, you know who, who loved trying all this stuff. They're one of the teams, and I think we're going to see more of this uh, that sell the uh, the beer bats. You know those big uh, plastic yeah. beer shaped uh, uh, mugs with the team logo on it. And I saw a lot of people around uh, the Woodpeckers games, um, you know, walking around with these beer bats. How um, much beer is in a beer bat? I don't know how much beer, but I think it's at least twenty four ounces. They're they're pretty. Uh, they're thin. They're so. pretty. They're pretty substantial. Right. No, it's definitely a big beer. Don't get me wrong. But it's not like they're big and long. Yeah, they're they're a good two and a half feet long or something. They're ridiculous. I mean, they'll they'll go up to an average sized person's midsection basically. Um, so it's just kind of a fun thing. I, I and this is a big uh, thirsty Thursday town. I was in town on a on a thirsty Thursday, and um, you know they sell a lot less beer bats on thirsty Thursday because those are not you know discounted. But uh, <laughs> you know there's a bar in uh, Wrightfield, Healy's Bar. It's named after a big uh, big. He, uh, businessman in Fayetteville who's a wholesaler uh, so he doesn't really have other bar locations but he's a distributor wholesaler uh, so in Healy's bar you know they got the bands they had a big thirsty Thursday scene there um, Fayetteville is probably the loudest ballpark I've ever been to seriously bar none just pure volume all the time wow. uh, a combination of just how loud the music is and they just really go for this amped up approach um, one of those teams that like between every pitch you know just if there's an opportunity for sound, they they do it. Um, for me, it took a little getting used to. I, I would say, you know, in my heart of hearts, not just with Fayetteville, but a lot of teams, I, I kind of have a tendency to be like, hey, can we turn it down a, a little bit? But old man hill. Yeah, right old man hill. That's for sure. Um, but you know, but in Fayetteville, I think one of the things is you know, a military town. Um, I think they're going for something a little less traditionally minor league baseball and a little more like high energy rock and roll kind of st- stuff. You know, I, I had uh, staff members tell me that uh, maybe a little bit more what you'd associate with arena sports, uh, you know, hockey, something, something like that. Hmm. Um, and so they don't do a lot of between uh, between inning on field stuff. Um, you know, they'll do some stuff on the dugout, but a lot of it is just uh, score, uh, video board based, you know, music, party atmosphere based. They just kind of keep the energy pumping. It's a very, very high energy place. And as I mentioned last week, to me, one of the most distinctive aspects is that, that there's train tracks on two sides of the stadium. Uh, Amtrak running down the third base line and in the outfield, uh, cargo freight trains uh, and troop transport trains that run uh, along the outfield. And that, to me, was one of the most distinctive aspects of that park is throughout the ball game, you could have trains going by on, on either of two sides of the stadium, which I liked a lot. <laughs> I just thought it was cool to be at a minor league game and have trains going by all the time. And one thing we talked about last week, too, before you made the the rest of your stops was going to Richmond and trying to see what that environment is like now in such an old stadium and a place that seems to be in flux, obviously, for mul- multiple years now, back when it was a triple-A team, now a double-A team, now a team maybe looking for a new stadium. I think they're hosting the Eastern League All-Star game this year, right? They are, they are yeah. Yeah. So what, what were you able to take away from that atmosphere and how Richmond is kind of going about 
you know, life in that stadium and as a double-A team nowadays. Yeah, well, that was a dynamic that really existed in, in Lynchburg as well. Um, you know, a new ownership group there and a lot of changes to the ballpark uh, since the Elmore group took over the team prior to 2016 and Chris Jones is the team GM and president there. So it was interesting to see a lot of the improvements there, a lot more colorful, a lot more high energy than the last time I was there. And then in Richmond, it's a little bit of a different story because you've had the same core you know, leadership and ownership there the entire time that the Flying Squirrels have been uh, residents of the Diamond, which is now 10 years. The Diamond, I love it. I totally understand why the team and minor league baseball, and from an operational standpoint, you don't want to be there. It is a big concrete slab. You know, it's like the double-A version of a you know, the vet or somewhere like yeah, that. That's a good so, you know, as someone who grew up in that era, you know, it's, it's just such a cool throwback to be in a facility like that. The Flying Squirrels have wanted a new stadium for a long time. But one thing they do really, really well, I mean, this is a team, you know, the ownership group, you know, led by, you know, Chuck Domino, Parney, Todd Parney Parnell, probably the most well-known executive in all of minor league baseball in terms of sheer force of personality and energy. You know, he's the president there. You have, you know, really good uh, leadership there. Um, and a lot of high energy, so they're not the kind of front office that would ever just be like, look, this situation uh, kind of sucks and we just have to deal with it. They just go all in and make it really fun, kind of shoot themselves in the foot a little bit in terms of getting a new stadium because they keep leading the league in attendance. I was there on a Monday and Tuesday, and they had a crowd on a Monday, which they were complaining about in that typical way when I visit, kind of like, ah, you know, you should have been here some other day. But to me, I was like, man, I've been in ballparks on Friday nights that have the same crowd you guys are getting on Monday. They're doing a great job. And there's so much square footage at the diamond. It's two levels, huge, huge concrete facility. And one thing they do is, you know, they, they hired, uh, you know, local mural artists. So all over these, like, what would be just kind of gray, worn slabs of concrete, you know, they have murals and colorful local artists and uh, artwork by kids and huge signs from opening days in which sign where fans were able to sign these big opening day banners that are now framed and all over the stadium. So for a ballpark with so much room to move that is uh, 30-some years old, that is kind of in a deteriorated shape, that is just kind of ugly, brutalist slabs of concrete, they do a phenomenal job of uh, keeping the energy high there and keeping it a really lively, vibrant place. Uh, no doubt Richmond has responded. Uh, I'm not just saying this. Like, Richmond loves the Flying Squirrels, and it's just it's really cool to see uh, such a, a great relationship between team and community. And I happened to be there on Tuesday when they did have a uh, midday 2 p.m. press conference I attended announcing uh, specifics of the Eastern League All-Star game. And they are making it an Eastern League All-Star week. I mean, it is insane from like a Sunday night kickoff party with uh, music and food trucks, um, then a concert at the R Richmond Raceway with uh, Big and Rich. You know, oh, yeah. Save a horse, ride a cowboy. They got them for the Eastern League All-Star game. Yeah, yeah, big get by uh, minor league double-A standards. Um, you know, all kinds of other musical guests, including, um, you know, some some of the musical guests, the Tron Gone Band and uh, the Mighty Joshua, a reggae artist who's real well-known in, in Richmond. There's some premier Yacht Rock, yacht rock uh, cover band playing. Um, you know, they, they just have so much going on. A, a star-studded, you know, uh, celebrity home run derby, uh, softball home run derby taking place. Uh, and on and on and on, and that's Parney, uh, you know, the uh, Squirrels president leader. He's the kind of guy where like too much is never enough, and I think he's always concerned that he doesn't have enough, and then always does too much. And uh, if you know Parney, if you know the Flying Squirrels, you know like their All Star game is just going to be packed uh, from top to bottom for you know four four nights, five days straight. It's it's like a, a real extravaganza, and uh, I think something well worth checking out if you can check out that kind of thing. Ben, what's coming up next for you? 
well, as I said, um, got a lot more, obviously a lot more content on the road uh, from this road trip. You know, it's a little different this year. As I mentioned before, I'm not using the blog specifically. So I'll have a lot of kind of blog style content of odds and ends. I will have a lot more features, at least three features to come from Fayetteville, and then at least one more from both Fayetteville, from Lynchburg and Richmond, uh, in addition to all the kind of blog stuff. Uh, on Monday, I'll have a more uh, overview of Fayetteville's uh, Sagra Stadium, uh, kind of a tour of that to supplement the food article that went up today. Uh, and on and on. So this is now the busy time of year. Once I get on the road, once I open myself up emotionally, um, now I'm really, uh, really cruising and got a lot, lot more material to come. Uh, another trip, you know, next month, more trips to be announced, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So milb.com slash fans slash Ben's biz. If you're not bookmarking that and you like what I do, please do that. milb.com slash fans slash Ben's biz, Twitter at Ben's biz, you know, always got to self promote. There you go. He did it all for me. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Tyler. I didn't mean to uh, take away no, your, it's good. Your, your line there. <laughs> but thank you, and thank you, Sam, Thanks. sitting to my left in conference room 5S of the Chelsea market. Don't find it. Final segment of this week's episode, 208 of the show before the show. MILB TV is where you can catch all of the best and brightest of minor league baseball. Sam, what are you watching this week? Yeah, so uh, one thing that we probably would have brought up in three strikes um, but didn't really have space for this week was Nate Pearson getting called up to A New Hampshire, uh, number 70 overall prospect. Uh, one of my favorite pitching prospects to watch just because he has elite velocity. I think he hit 104 uh, last year in the AFL. Um, just crazy, crazy velocity. Uh, but n- not only that, he pairs it with a really good slider, um, two good breaking balls, really. Uh, and, you know, his control has been really improving this year. Uh, at Class A Advanced Dunedin, he had a 0.86 ERA, 35 strikeouts, only three walks in 21 innings. You'll recall last year he missed basically the entire season up until the AFL after fracturing his arm on a comebacker in May. Uh, so that was really disappointing. Good to see him get uh, some starts under him this year. Healthy, what you know, no worries, at least so far. Uh he only gave up two hits, no walks over five innings, and struck out eight in his Double A New Hampshire debut uh, earlier this week. Right now, he's slated to go on Sunday against Binghamton. You're going to want to watch that, see how high he can hit on the gun. He's one of those pitchers that, on every pitch, you're always looking back to the radar gun to see uh, how hard he's throwing because you you don't want to say you missed the time he's going to throw 101. Um, he's starting to rev up a little bit. The velocity wasn't quite at that same AFL level, uh, but now he's starting to hit triple digits again. Uh, He's always going to be must-watch NILB TV, so getting to see him in his second Double A start should be really cool, especially now as Double A, you know, as he gets used to the level a little bit more. What else is going to happen with him? Uh, so that's what I got my eye on this weekend. What about you, Tyler? The Pentacle Blue Wahoos and Alex Kirilov are headed to uh, the former site of their Double A affiliation. They moved the Minnesota Twins affiliation to Pensacola this year from Chattanooga. Uh, Alex Kirilov did not play there last year, but it's always interesting when those guys go back to a place where they had played the season before for guys who have returned to that level. Uh, but Alex Kirilov is obviously a, a really hot story right now in the minor leagues, returning to action, top 10 prospect across baseball and the second ranked prospect in that Minnesota organization. So, um, you can watch his continued evolution in that return from the wrist injury this weekend as the Blue Wahoos face off against the Lookouts uh, in Tennessee. And that 
we'll wrap it up for this week's episode of the show before the show. You can get in touch like John did for our three strikes question this week. Podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykes or MILB. I am a Tyler Mond complaining about NHL officiating. And uh, that'll do it for us this week. We'll talk to you next week on the show before the show from MILB.com. We'll be right back.